this morning we are uh, finishing up our series on the book of Mark. 35 weeks of study. I have about 80 pages of notes that I've taken just from different commentaries and things I've read about in these chapters. And uh, here we are. And as we continue to think about defining moments in our lives, we think about those moments that were kind of crucial to making the next decision, to making the next choice. For many of us, that defining moment was the moment that we accepted Christ into our lives. For others of us, that was a big moment, but there were some other moments along the way where God sent the right person at the right time at the time that we needed it. And I had that happen over and over throughout my life with people who have mentored me and spoken to my life in moments that I needed it the most. And they were there just at the right time because God's timing is always perfect when it comes to these things. When we think about defining moments, we think about those moments that we had, we, we stood at a crossroads, one way or the other, we had to make a decision. And those decisions that we made began to form who we were, began to form the, the person we were becoming. Now, in the world of professional football, certain players get the most glory and recognition, like quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers, or even certain defensive players. Offensive linemen rarely get noticed. But the offense won't be able to move down the field without the largely hidden, and some largely, unspectacular work of the lineman. That's why it was gratifying to see a lineman honored for his service to the team. On Sunday, October 22nd, 2017, Cleveland Browns fans gave offensive tackle Joe Thomas a standing ovation in the third quarter as he left the field from an injury. Prior to that injury, Thomas had played every snap for his team since he was drafted in 2007, a streak of 10,363 plays in a row. Thomas wasn't a flashy superstar, but his quiet, consistent, and humble faithfulness was a big part of what made the offense work. When asked about his streak of over 10,000 plays, Thomas said, something I found comfort in is just do your job. Isn't that copyrighted? I've got people in my family who get up and go to work every day, and they don't complain. I am blessed to do what I love to do so much. I just hope it means I'm a regular guy who gets up every morning and goes to work, plays as hard as he can, and is a good teammate. I hope that's what they say about me. So when we think about defining moments, we've had quite a streak going. As we've studied through the book of Mark, we've gone through the 16 chapters, and though it's the shortest gospel, there was much to learn. There was much that we pull out of this gospel. Now, as I, was, as I kind of poured over each chapter again, I saw that there were four main categories of teaching. We will not be able to go through every, every part of it chapter by chapter because it would be about an hour and 20 minutes to probably get through it all. So I've narrowed some things down here. There's some of the key elements that are repetitive that we see in Mark. One of those things is exactly what we sang about this morning, identity. Identity. The second thing that we saw in Mark are things that help to grow our faith. They're discipleship. They're, they're tools that we need in order to grow beyond where we are today. So we call that discipleship. We're growing our faith. The third biggest uh, thing here in the book of Mark Biggest subject is mission. Mission or evangelism. We talked about that last week. 
And then fourth is the power and work of the Holy Spirit in us to accomplish the mission. See, Christ didn't give us a mission that we couldn't accomplish without the work of the Holy Spirit. We needed the Holy Spirit to do the work. And there was no way we could accomplish it in our, on our own strengths and our abilities. So let's start with identity just for a moment. We just sang about it. We talked about it just last week. But the entire book of Mark started with identity, if you might remember correctly. You see, right at the beginning, Mark declares that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a great prophet. He is the Son of God, and Mark declares it right from the beginning. This is the story that will tell you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then, then there was this declaration of the centurion at the end, where he says, what does he say at the cross? This truly was the Son of God. And we also see that that identity was affirmed at the baptism. Right? When Jesus came out of that water, they heard a voice from the heaven that said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. His identity was being a Son to the Father. And we just sang about that this morning. That's our identity. Our identity is children of God. We are His children. And that's where our identity is wrapped up in. Now, understanding your identity has the potential to become a defining moment in your life. When you begin to stop thinking that you are just who you are, you are who other people say you are, you begin to live in the identity that Christ has for you, it can become a defining moment and change everything. You are not defined by what you do or not do. What you have or you do not have. You're defined as a child of God. Amen. Personal identity, we see this here. At the very beginning, we have that personal identity about God saying who we are. Believing who we are. But as we come to the close of Mark, it transitions a little bit differently. Because yes, we are discovering who we are as children of God. And as children of God, you have a purpose, you have security, and he gives us relationships right here among the body of Christ to help us to grow and to challenge us as a church, and you plant yourself in a church and you continue to grow. We put on the righteousness of Christ. We choose to believe what God says about us, not because we are perfect, but because he is perfect. But then as we get towards the end, we see that that identity shifts a little bit. And it becomes about who we are called to be together. What's our identity as a people of Christ? as followers of Christ. The identity is critical. Not only our personal identity, but our identity as a believing body of Christ. You know that often our identity is solidified in the wilderness. Our identity is often solidified in the wilderness. You might remember that Jesus, after doing all these great things, Went to a time where he went to fast for 40 days. After, right after the baptism, actually. And the word of God says in the book of Mark that he was led in the wilderness by the Satan, by the devil, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested. 
See, the wilderness can be a defining moment for people of Christ. How many have been in the wilderness? How many have been there? How many have found themselves in the wilderness one day? And you know that being in that wilderness is what helped to shape you be the person that you are today. Now, when you're in the wilderness, it doesn't look so great. When you're in the, among the trees and that's all you can see are the trees, it doesn't look so great. But when you get away from that wilderness just for a moment, you begin to see that God was at work the entire time. And you begin to see that God was making you who you are by helping you through that wilderness because his Holy Spirit was there directing it the whole time. Jesus was led in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we want to blame everything on Satan. But sometimes God allows certain things in our lives to help us grow and to shape our identity. To test your identity. And so we learn to grow through these, these tests and they're necessary to solidify our faith. And we think about that individual identity, knowing who you are in Christ. And then that translates, and our individual identity, when we come together, translates into our identity as a church. And last week I talked about how we have, in the American church, an identity crisis. How are we to be identified? What does the Word of God say about the church? What does the Word of God say about what the church should look like? What it should be doing. We see this in Mark chapter 16. That number one, the identity of for people of faith, our identity should be, I'm sorry, people of faith. People who believe. And we see that when the disciples, that when Jesus was crucified, what did the disciples do? They had so much faith that they went into hiding. They went into hiding. I joked last week that I took a lot of study on that particular verse just to figure out what was going on there. All the, with all the commentaries and studies, I came up with a deeply theological answer because they were scared. <laughs> you see, faith is not just about believing something will happen, even though you don't see the evidence of it right now. That's part of faith, but it is not complete faith. Complete faith is trusting in God no matter what happens. Period. Trusting his love for you. Trusting his plan for you. There's a song sometimes we sing. It's an older chorus. Maybe it's a hymn. I'm not sure. But I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And just in case you weren't sure, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So complete faith is trusting God no matter what happens. Because this life is going to be filled with tribulations and trials and challenges and tests. There's nobody that I know on this earth that has none of those things. Even Jesus has those things. And we can look at this scary world around us when it seems like nothing is going our way. And we live in fear. And we want to retreat and hide behind the walls. We want to draw the shades. We don't want anybody to know that we're followers of Jesus. And I asked the question last week, if the risen Jesus were to appear before us right here in this room, would he rebuke us for our lack of faith like he did the disciples because they were in hiding? Would he rebuke us for our stubborn unbelief? And as the world seems to get worse and worse, where are the people of faith? In hiding behind 
Where is your confidence? What do we call the deep? church of people. The second part of our identity is people that we're to be people of the resurrection. You see, the resurrection shows that what we think is the end is actually a new beginning. When Jesus Christ was dead and buried, his disciples thought it was over. It was completely done. But when he was dead and buried, we know that he rose again. We know that that was a second opportunity. That was a second chance. It wasn't completely dead. It was a new beginning. And so what seemed like it was dead and put away and dead and buried became something that was a new beginning for the disciples. That's where it all began. Because now they had the confidence that Jesus is who he said he was. And now they can go out in confidence with the word of God, knowing that Jesus was no longer dead, but he has been risen. See, the death and resurrection of Christ is not the end, only the beginning. It was a new challenge, and it was a new day for the disciples. And whatever is ending in your life right now is going to lead to a new beginning. It's going to lead to a new purpose for you. The old person has passed away, Scripture says, and the new person is being resurrected in you right now in this moment as God is doing his work. So we're to be a people of faith. We're to be a people declaring the resurrection, that there is new life in Christ. We're to be people on a mission. See, Jesus is still calling his followers from behind those closed doors to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every nation. And there's no greater message that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear today but that he is calling us out. How are we to be identified? People of faith. People of the resurrection. People on mission, and as people filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, He gave us His Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish all that He has He has given us to do. Every assignment that He's placed on your life, He does not expect you to do on your own. But he expects you to do it in the power and the flow of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do it alone. And so He gave us the work of the Holy Spirit in us to be able to accomplish everything that He's placed there for us to do. Identity. Not only as individuals, but our identity as a church body, as a family. And then we talked about growing our faith, that discipleship portion. And there's passage after passage, passage after passage, chapter after chapter after chapter of things that we want to grow our faith that we, we need to begin doing in our lives to help grow. The word of God says this, says without faith, How do we grow that faith? The journey begins with answering the call. When you answer the call, you know that there's a cost to being a disciple of Christ. The disciples answered the call. Jesus was walking by the shore. He chose people who would follow him. He chooses some fishermen. And those fishermen left it all behind. They dropped their nets and they began to follow Jesus. The call of discipleship means that you may have to leave things behind to follow Christ. Your priorities change, and your priorities will need to change to be a Christ follower. Jesus made it clear that there will be a cost. There was, this was not a bait and switch scheme. 
He let them know up front that there will be a cost for following him and reminded them continually that there would be a cost. If you want to be my follower, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like everything goes exactly as we want it to be. Everything goes according to our plan. In Mark 8, Jesus begs his followers not to trade down on life while foolishly thinking they're trading on it. He's saying, don't buy into this gain the whole world work for me mentality that is the rage of humanity in this century. See, discipleship is a matter of profit and loss, a question of whether we will waste our lives or whether we will invest our lives. Then we talk a little bit about our, our, our salvation. When you think about discipleship, how do you think about your salvation, how you are saved in Christ? And Jesus gives the illustration of taking a new patch placing it on an old wine bottle, wine skin. See, salvation is not a partial patching of, of one's life. It's a whole new robe of righteousness. The Christian life is not mixing some of the old life and some of the new. See, the old represents the old life, and you're trying to put a new patch on it and hoping that that's going to work for you. Rather, it's a fulfillment of trying to patch your old life with a new patch of Christianity, it will be an exercise in frustration. Because it's two years old. You're still trying to keep old life, patch it with new, and that is going to continue to rip and leak and destroy your life. It will be an exercise in frustration. Why? Because the old life and the new life do not belong together. You cannot patch it with the patch of Christ. So growing faith in discipleship, another piece of being disciple is what can you do when the pressure is on? We had uh, Pastor Dan Condon, used to teach at the school, which is some of the Christian academy there in Worcester. One of the things he would always do is he'd bring in a Boston King donut to his class. And he would talk about what do you do when the pressure is on? Take that donut. <laughs> when you apply the pressure to that Boston cream donut, what's going to happen? Some of you did, you know, some of you did that in your car. You drove down on your cans while you're, you're taking the bike. When you apply pressure to the donut, what, what happens, right? What was in the on the inside comes out, right? And when the pressure is on in our lives. Jesus went to this garden called Gethsemane. You might remember the extreme pressure he was under right before the, the crucifixion. And he became the example of how we face trials. And one of the interesting things about the story that I've never noticed before is that after the communion and everything that he did with the disciples, it says they ended the song of praise with a hymn, and then they went out to the garden. And I noticed something I never noticed before. Jesus sang. 
sing a hymn along with his disciples. I've never pictured Jesus ever in my life singing a song. Never seen any pictures of that or any paintings or anything, ever. You're an artist. Something nobody else has done. Singing a hymn of his day at that time. <laughs> So what, how did he face his garden? When the pressure came on, what did he do? He praised the Lord. When you face the pressure, when things are going wrong, and you feel that pressure coming on, begin with praise. Praise the Lord for the things that he has done for you. Sing songs that speak of his truth in your life. Sing songs that speak about his value and how he values you. Sing songs that remind you that he is over you even through the darkest storms. Even through your garden of Gethsemane, he is there with you. And the second thing Jesus did when he faced Gethsemane, first he started with praise, but then he went to prayer. You see, Gethsemane means tribulation or press. Crushing your self-reliance. When you're in the garden, that's what happens. Your self-reliance begins to be crushed. And Jesus was, says, the word of God says he was distressed, he was crushed, he was deeply troubled. And what did he do? He went to prayer. <clears throat> See, worship and prayer brings peace and resolve in the middle of that garden that they're going through, that garden of depressing. And he would pray, and he became, as he prayed, he put himself in alignment with the Father. Because he said, Lord, God, Father, if you could take this from me, but nevertheless, your that prayer is, is a little bit of you know, Lord, if you could take this from me, but that prayer brought up my Nevertheless, Lord, your will. So growing in faith and discipleship is when you go through the Gethsemane. I'm not saying if. When you go through the Gethsemane of your life, when the pressure is on, you say, Lord, I'm going to praise you anyway. I'm going to be reminded of your promises for me. I'm going to continue to sing a song to you, and I'm not going to allow Satan to have a foothold in my life, but I'm going to continue pressing forward. And I'm going to bring it in prayer to the Lord. And I'm going to lay it at his feet, because I can't do anything about it. in those moments that, that God came on and said, Lord, what you're going to do for you in those moments is that you're The next part we talked about is recognizing the needs in our world and doing something about it. Injustice, we talked about. What gets you riled up? What gets you upset? And we talked about how Jesus had this sham trial. It was one of the greatest injustices of all history. The trial of Jesus. He was, he was treated unfairly. It was a sham rigged trial. They had already decided that he was guilty. He was guilty until proven guilty. But how did Jesus handle that in his life, in the injustices and all the injustices happening at that time? Number one, he did not judge. Jesus didn't have a self-righteous attitude, and neither should we. He would have every right. 
person that served the church. He had the ability to do that if he wanted. See, when we see injustice, we can easily fall into the trap of self-righteous defensive behavior. But that's not the example of the human Christ. The other example that we see from Jesus is the love of our enemies. Because from the cross, Jesus showed love when he said, forgive them, Father. They don't know. The answer to true change answer to injustice around the world is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is a redemption for all of us. So we continue with that theme of discipleship. How do we inspire true change? Focusing on By not thinking of ourselves better than Discipleship is the importance of prayer. We just talked about it with Jesus. What did he do? He went to prayer. And we see that Jesus also spent his time healing and casting out demons. And he fed 5,000 people right after he found out about the death of his cousin, John the Baptist. Then Jesus hit the pause button. He got up early before anyone could bother him. And he went to a secluded place. There's alignment. And we talked about some roadblocks to answer prayer. Some roadblocks to answer prayer. What are the things that keep those prayers where we sometimes feel in moments where the prayer is hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back to us? And here's where we talk about Jesus and his disciples were walking into Jerusalem. And what did they see? But they saw a fig tree. And Jesus walked up to that fig tree. And the fig tree had no fruit on it. So Jesus cursed the tree. And so what are the things that we see that's a roadblock to prayer? The first thing, the first roadblock to answer prayer is our dead spiritual lives. See, the tree looked great on the outside, but inside, it was dead. Inside, nothing was growing. And so our dead spiritual lives, even though we may look great on the outside, there's something inside of us that's dead. And when we pray, we wonder why those prayers aren't being answered. There's a roadblock. Roadblock number two is making prayer something that it is not. Because the Word of God says that His house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's not just for needs, but it's for continued communication. When we spend time in prayer with God, it's not just about God, I want, God, I want, God, I want. But it's about a constant communication with the Father so that we can be in alignment with His purposes and plans. So that we can pray for one another. So that we can pray for the things that we want Him to work out in our lives. But the focus of prayer isn't that He would be some kind of celestial vending machine for us, just giving us what we want. So, what we're praying for and how we're praying for it and our motivations for praying it can be a roadblock in our lives. 
Roadblock number three is lack of faith. Jesus says, if you truly believe in your heart that you have faith, you can speak to the mountain to be removed and cast into the sea. And we might remember we talked about this. Mountains at that time was a, was a metaphor for those big, huge problems in your life. To be able to say to the mountain and speak to the mountain and say, you be cast into the sea. And Jesus said, if you can speak that with faith, then it will happen. The mountain, the huge thing in your life that seems to be getting in the way consistently over and over and over again, you can speak to the mountain and by faith believe that it's going to be cast away into the sea. No longer being a roadblock or a hindrance for you in your spiritual faith. And then roadblock number four is unforgiveness in your heart. Where God says here in Mark, when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against. That creates a roadblock. If you truly want to see God answer prayers in powerful and visible ways, whether it be on a Tuesday night prayer, whether it be our prayer on Sunday morning here around the circle, or whether it be your prayers at home as you're continuing to pray for your needs, your families, and needs of the people around you, we will need to blast through these roadblocks to allow God needs to have a place to visit us now. Begin to see these miracles taking place. Well, we learned a lot from Mark so far. Not too much more. I'm going chapter by chapter. Again, not only one reason. But there's another part of discipleship, and that discipleship, part of discipleship, is serving and giving. You might remember that the disciples were walking along with Jesus and they were trying out, they were arguing back and forth. Of course, they were hoping Jesus didn't hear about who is the greatest of them. Which one of us is better than the other? The disciples begin to argue about this. And Jesus, who is the most impactful leader of all time, said that I came not to be served, but to serve. So why don't we, if we're Christ followers, if we say we're believers in Christ, why don't we serve? We don't think serving maybe will give us the life that we long for. Maybe we're afraid that if we were to give, we would lose. But in God's kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. We are called to serve as Christ served, both within the church and in our community. I'll go as far to say as you will not grow in your faith if it continues to be all about you and what you can get. You must find a place to serve Christ, serve as Christ serves. If not, you'll be missing out on opportunities for God to work in and through your life. That's the serving part. Now here's the giving part. Needed. A donkey. God wants your donkey. Remember that message? You can take it to the King James if you want. God wants you to donkey. Um, <laughs> and we think about why do we give? You might remember Jesus sent his disciples into the town to get this donkey so that he can ride on it into town as the Messiah. And the question comes up why do we give to tithe? Why do we give tithes? Why do we give to missions? Does God need that? 
what we give to tithes, we give tithes and we give commissions to give hope to those around the world in their need. Why do we serve in the various ministries of the church and in community outreach? To bring hope to those who walk through these doors and to bring hope with us wherever we go. Why do we work to improve and maintain our facilities to make this building a place of hope? To show people that we will care for them in the same way that we care for our building. Because both things, people and buildings, are entrusted to us by God. We have to remember the why behind the what if we want the what to have an impact. Now imagine what would happen if when the Lord Jesus comes to us and says, The Lord needs you, the Lord needs your donkey. You and I say, okay, God, everything I own is yours. You say you want this, it's yours. I'm giving it to you right now, without hesitation. Whatever you ask for, Lord, everything I own is yours. What if we were to take that kind of attitude about our study? About what God has given us? About what God has blessed us with? Let me tell you something. Serving and giving. And then the last part of the discipleship is, is decision making. Talk about the decision is yours. And we all can have, we all probably have stories about how our need to impress others caused us to make some pretty foolish decisions. Having our eyes on the wrong thing causes us to make See that Herod made some pretty foolish decisions in, in the Word of God. You might remember I had a bunch of agenda blocks, a big, huge agenda blocks stacked up here. And with each poor decision that Herod made, he took out one more block. But with each poor decision, eventually, the tower came falling down. And Herod made all kinds of poor decisions in his life. about the way God works in our lives is that even a fallen tower with all the poor decisions we've made can be built back up again block by block as we make the right decisions. As we do the right thing. As we do the things we know God is calling us to do. That tower that once had fallen over can now be rebuilt. One block at a time. As forcefully as God can speak to your heart, I believe he would say to us, you believe in me. I want you to believe in me. We think about our decisions in our lives and the things that we do, the choices that we make. It's one thing to say you believe in God. It's another thing to say you believe God. Whatever he says, that's what you believe. You say we say we believe and we do. The Bible says that when the demons believe, James, even the demons believe and tremble. So is believing going to be it? Is that the silver bullet for your life? The demons believe. But it's different to believe in God than to believe in Him.
those components that we just talked about, about how to grow our faith, about how to become the, the person that God is calling us to be. Faith becomes a central piece to the way that we grow our lives. Faith is complete trust in someone or something. And what we believe and what we place our faith in is very important. Because our faith is not in faith. Our faith is not in hope. Our faith is not in miracles. Our faith is not in a pastor. Our faith is not in the assemblies of God. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. And that is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the other thing that we talk about with faith is it takes faith to grow faith. Right? If you have no seeds to plant, you get nothing. It takes faith to grow faith. So when we think about the seed parable, if you plant nothing, what do you get? Nothing. If you hold on to your seed and you never put it into the ground, what gain do you get? Nothing. However, if you plant the seed, what do you get? Depends on what you plant it, right? But you have to say, you have to plant something to get something. No faith grows no faith. Nothing equals nothing. And we know that growing faith is a process. It does not happen instantaneously. And the more it's used, the more it grows. And if not used, it is taken away. And often faith is forged into waiting, a periods of waiting where we're sitting back going, I'm believing you in faith, Lord, but I don't see it happening. Great faith starts somewhere, and Jesus talks about a mustard seed. Very tiny Starts off small. But what's the expectation when you put it in the ground? That it's going to build life. That it's going to be great. Even if you have a mustard seed, a tiny bit of faith, and it may not be much. And you may say, man, I really don't have a lot of faith. The Word of God says, it only takes a tiny seed to be planted for great faith. So great faith often starts out small and gets bigger and grows with each time you plant and expect it to grow bigger. And we talked about faith and doubt. Faith will, by, will, will be diluted by other things and ultimately counteract your faith. It can weaken your faith. You might remember the story about the disciples who could not heal this young man that had seizures. They prayed over him. They believed. They had faith. They saw all that Jesus did. They saw the miracles. They saw everything that Jesus had done prior to this moment. So I don't think their faith is pretty high. If it only takes a mustard seed of faith, mustard. What's going on here? Why were they not able to heal? You see, sometimes it's about what negates our faith or dilutes the things that we believe. The disciples believed all the right things, and they were used by God to do things like this already. This was nothing new, so it seemed. But the disciples let the wrong motives and pride get in the way of healing this Lord. They wanted to show those Pharisees what they were capable of doing. Faith is diluted by pride. Faith can be diluted by a failure. Faith is weakened. When we pray, when 
what he asked for did not happen. This is why the man said, I believe. Unbelief can be a belief of faith. It's not that you have no faith, it's just not been diluted. That's probably what happens here with this one. The long and painful ordeal, some can even think going through trials that you've been facing. It has the same impact on our faith. It throws toxic doubt in our faith. But the only thing that we identify with the Father's explanation. I do believe. And last we think about mission. All throughout Mark, the mission is made clear. He came for the outcasts. He came for the tax collector. He came for the person that the religious figures of his day called the scum of the earth. He sent out his disciples to go to every He encountered a man with a withered hand. And when everybody else saw the withered hand and they saw what was happening, Jesus saw the potential. We can see the problem, but Jesus saw the potential. And I challenge you to see people, to see the problem, and see the potential as a person is created and loved by God. All that we learn, all that we experience, all the worship, the prayer, and comfort is so that we can go right back out and show God's love to someone else. That is the mission. That is being kingdom-minded. That is taking focus off of self and giving yourself to mission. And we do that in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission. This morning, can we all stand together as we close up today? And we think about Christ and his work in us. And we think about all the signs of his followers and believers in Christ. And we think about being the church that God has called us to be. Mark chapter 16, you might remember, ends with this, about the signs of his followers. And he says, and then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. And anyone who believes is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name. They will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety. And if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. See, at the beginning of Mark, he promises to give us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The ending and how it continues is up to us. We are the rest of the story. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, as people in his community, as people who gather together in his name, and our mission as a church is to give hope by loving God, by loving people, by reaching the world, and by making disciples. Let's pray this morning.
Father, we just thank you for this moment. We thank you, Lord, for what you're calling your church to be and do. And I pray, Father, that right now in this moment, we'd be encouraged to continue to grow in our faith, to take us beyond where we are today. We know, Lord God, that it is a process. It doesn't all happen at once. But, Lord God, this morning we continue to believe that you're doing great things among us. We continue to try to see what you're calling us to as a church and as a body. And I pray, Father, this morning that you continue to call us out, Lord God, to reach those that need to know your love, your grace, your forgiveness. I pray, Father God, this morning you would help us to live out the mission in our lives as we grow in faith, as we grow in our prayer lives, as we continue to grow in our decision-making, as we continue to allow you to work in our lives, and we're transformed, help us to turn and to help others be transformed. Be among us, Lord. We thank you for the call. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I charge you, as I did last year, to go and be a people of God. Take a 10-minute break, then we'll head right back in here.